soft-shelled turtles have reduced bone. It's, it's what you'd sort of picture if you were heading from having no shell to having a shell. Hello and welcome to Herpetological Highlights, episode 62. Um, I'm Tom Major and co-hosting with me, as always, is Ben Marshall. And Happy New Year! I think is in order to those of you who follow the Julian calendar like we do. Yeah, we've had a brief hiatus, but we're back. Uh, the Christmas special never got off the ground like it never did last year. So it was a Christmas disaster. Yeah, Christmas is just not an easy time to record a podcast. So yeah, no, just kind of didn't happen. But you know, who cares? There's enough Christmas specials and everything else, and everyone's sick and tired of it by now. So this is a nice January podcast, and we're going to be talking about. Soft-shell turtles. Possibly the weirdest type of turtle you can find. Yes, very strange. Now, this is a Patreon episode for Brandon Barassa, so big up yourself, Brandon. And Brandon actually dedicated this episode to his wife, Gwyn, who apparently is a lover of soft-shell turtles, soft-shell turtles, as are we now, I think, after reading about them so much. I've become quite fond of them, and uh, yeah... We're going to talk about Apolloni Mutica, which is the smooth, soft-shell turtle. You got any idea what that name means? Just to throw you a curveball immediately? Well, isn't an Apollone like some kind of disc-like bivalve? Oh, maybe. I thought it was probably to do with the mountains. I don't know. <laughs> a double curveball. I've curved you ball back, sir. Hmm. So Let's see. Mut- Mutica. Mutica. I don't it's, know. it's the mutant turtle from the Appalachian Mountains. That's what I'm rolling with. Wow. I don't think that's no. That's just that's, that's wow. Completely absurd thing to have said. Oh, here we go. Apollon is derived from the Greek apo, which means separate, and the Anglo-Saxon alone, meaning solitary. So it means separate and solitary, referring to the original isolated Hudson River population of uh, the eastern spiny soft shell. Apparently, I don't know what the specific bit means mutica should we google it while we're here let's yes. do it go on then son okay duh, 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 mutica um oh apparently apollos could also mean soft or tender which might refer to their squidginess i prefer that so do i soft and tender um mutica which is from the latin mutilus which sounds very exotic and a little bit sort of worrying, but actually just means shortened or docked. Oh, okay. Now, what's what part of the turtle that refers to? I They're hilarious think. little noses. Maybe, yeah, they have got little pointy noses, haven't they? Or maybe it's the fact that they are permanently docked because they don't go on land. I mean, they yeah, but they do... They do... Wait, no, that's... Permanently docked would always be on land. Well, isn't docked just like being adjacent to the land? I suppose. No, that's not a good description. That's pretty of it. weak. <laughs> it's pretty tenuous. Yeah. No, I won't be. Uh, I won't be. I won't be saying that ever again. Um, <laughs> so uh, yeah, I think we should introduce the first paper, and then maybe we can talk more about these hilarious little turtles. What do you think? Yeah, let's do it. Yeah. Okay. So uh, the first paper is by Ross Blewett and Dreslick, twenty nineteen. Movement and home range of the smooth soft. It's quite a hard one to say. This one I get smooth when I start. Soft shell turtle. 
Yeah, but I yeah, my, you have my, to build but, yourself up to it, don't you? Yeah, I think it's because um, obviously there's a little bit of alliteration in there, which is challenging at any time. But then I don't know. My temptation is to say smooth soft shell, but smooth soft shell turtle, Apollone mutica. Uh, spatial ecology of a river specialist and this was published in diversity and like i said last year so it's pretty up to date um this is pretty much the newest spatial ecology information there is about the smooth soft shell turtle it's Um, it's, yeah now smooth soft see now i can't say it smooth it's hard I i did warn you ben yeah so there was another paper i was looking at and they decided to abbreviate that to sst right are you saying we should do the same thing? No, I just wanted to. I just wanted to bring it up. I think, I've, yeah, I think mm. we just say turtle. Yeah, well, if That's... you've got a word limit, I think abbreviating smooth, soft shell turtle because it is a little bit wordy. Um, I don't. I would just use turtle. That's one word. Mm. If you're talking about them specifically, yeah, you, people yeah. can assume that if it's a paper about these particular turtles, you're meaning. But when you say turtle, anyway. Um, I bet you they're nice to touch, these smooth, soft-shell turtles. Smooth and soft. Such a good combination for a thing, isn't it? Yeah, but also soggy. Mm, yeah. Uh, so you've mm. got to weigh that in there. Like True. I, I imagine them feeling like a very uh, dense sponge. Yeah, that's probably about right, actually. Um, I have no idea. I've never had the, had the honour. Well, we're going to talk about the porousness of their skin, which, you know, it could be spongy. Like a wet flannel. I hope not. But they kind of... What do they look like? They're a big flat disc, aren't they? They're a big flat disc. <laughs> they look like a regular turtle that's been squished. Yeah, they do. And they've got this really oh, pointy face, like we guys. said. And really exaggerated eyebrows. <laughs> and they look... And they've got this freakishly long neck, which they can retract inside, obviously, being a turtle. If you upset them, they'll retract in. And you just see their tiny pointy nose pointing out. Adults are plain brown, or they're sometimes olive or even orangey brown, and the females are blotchy compared to the males. The males are much more plain on the carapace. Um, they're countershaded, so the underneath of the turtle is usually white, and they have some pretty wild adaptations, some of which we'll talk about in the next paper, um, so I won't necessarily spoil that. But yeah, they can do some pretty cool stuff to do with breathing, and um, their skin, because it's so sort of porous for gas exchange they can actually release about 65 percent of their carbon dioxide that they produce through their skin which is pretty wild and they're really good at hunting fish they're deadly little predators they're really fast yeah. they'll sneak up on fish have you seen that god isn't there that wonderful video of somebody releasing one and it just zooming off into just the, zi- into yeah, the lake yeah disappears yeah oh, and it's I like watch that all day it's, it's almost like it's moving so fast it like goes across the water for a while yeah Absolutely amazing how fast these guys can go. Yeah. Unless the video sped up, and then I suppose it's just going regular speed, and it's still—I mean, it's still impressive. But I think it's a very fast turtle. Like they're extremely streamlined. I hope so. I hope. So. And they—they they very, very rarely go on land. They hate land. Land—they just don't deal well with it because they're so well adapted for the water. The land is just not somewhere they want to be. Um, Oh, and one other thing I wanted to say, when they hide their head inside, they can't actually shut the plastron. The plastron has no hinge. Mm. So some turtles, they can actually draw their head and tail in and then shut the two hinges, the hinges of the shell, the two shell pieces together. And you don't get that. Yeah. People's you, fingers. Mm. 
well, that would be awful. And then you're at the mercy of the turtle because oh, it's, yeah. your finger is by its head inside yeah. its special secret place. I you're mean, in its world now. That's where no one wants to be. But yeah, <clears throat> there's two subspecies. Two subspecies of this turtle. There's the Midland smooth softshell turtle, Apollonia mutica mutica, which is the one we're going to be talking about. And they are found throughout the central United States. And then the other subspecies is the Gulf Coast smooth shell, Apollone mutica culvata. And they range along the kind of south, the bottom of the USA, from Louisiana to the panhandle of Florida, all along that sort of southern edge. And the major difference in their behavior that I could work out, at least at a glance, is that midland soft shells are much more willing to live in bogs, swamps and lakes, while the Gulf Coast smooth soft shells, they tend to stick to rivers. You don't really find them outside of, you know, nice riverine habitat. So because we're in south central Illinois for this first paper, we're actually talking about Mutica Mutica, the midland smooth soft shell turtle, which is handy because that's also the subspecies which is found where Brandon lives in New Mexico. So it's actually very relevant to the request. Enormously widespread. Enormously widespread, yeah. That's like a very long way in in my books. It is a long way. America, from what I understand, is a big place. Mm. And this turtle seems to be covering about half of it with its range. Zipping down rivers. Hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, They've also been introduced to France by accident. By accident? Yeah. Either that or someone just, I don't know, zinged one into a bog. That's what I reckon probably happened. It's like, oh, Mm. this soft-shell turtle bit my dog. Off you go into the bog. If you were going to try and release them into a river, you could spin them like a pebble. You'd get it miles. Good distribution already. Skim them. <laughs> you can't go skimming soft-shell turtles. Um, but yeah, we're, this study takes place on the Kaskaskia River, which is such a nice name for a river. And I was like, do you know, I bet there'd be some nice facts about that river on the internet. No, there aren't. There's not a single nice fact. There's nothing of note about the Kaskaskia River whatsoever. Oh, anywhere. That... I challenge no. anyone to tell me different. It's a tributary of the Mississippi. That's its claim to fame. Well, I'm sure it's a damn fine one. Yeah, apparently the the flow has been heavily modified towards the mouth where it meets the Mississippi, classically. Mm. Yeah. But, yeah, not so much that these turtles won't live there, which is good. And they had two sites on the Kaskaskia River. One was upstream, one was downstream, although the sites were broadly similar. Silty-bottomed portions of river with quite eroded banks, accumulated wood and wide channels, as I said, because humans have been interfering and making them nice and wide, so boats and such can go up and down them. And they caught turtles using hoop nets, which are like classic lobster pot style nets where the turtle goes in through a funnel, um, tempted presumably by some delicious fish, but then it can't find its way back out of the narrow hole because it's a turtle and they haven't got that far yet which is unfortunate but it's handy if you're trying to catch loads well, of them. And, and they're going to be shooting around the bottom of the the trap and stuff they're not swimming directly in the middle no they're looking so, for the edges yeah which is mm. a you know that's a reasonable thing to do if you were stuck in a natural cave or something yeah <clears throat> i mean to me that's like level one escapology check everywhere i would be out of there in no time but i'm a human so yeah you know. but no you wouldn't uh, you wouldn't though that's Maybe if I was you could, panicking. You couldn't, you couldn't breathe long enough down there. By the time you got into the lobster pot, that's it. Mm. You'd be running out of air. Well, no, I think... All the I turtles think... would be looking at you laughing. 
game over, I th- mate. I don't know. I think they actually have the top of the net out of the water because, I mean, these tails oh. can largely breathe underwater, but not if they're stressed out. If they're, Rookie mistake. If, if they're, Rookie mistake. <laughs> <laughs> Rookie that mistake. would give you the air you needed to escape. <laughs> yeah, well, I think the whole point of these traps isn't to drown them it's to <laughs> capture them so they can then study them so i think if i was in a similar situation it would be a case that i was a study subject not a victim oh okay so they, yeah. they'd want to keep you they'd give me some air I'd have, my, I'd have time yeah okay no i shouldn't be boastful about my ability to get out of traps because i might have tested once and i'll be humiliated <laughs> yeah you're gonna you're gonna walk out to your study site one day see a tasty sandwich you know in this little little clearing pop out there next thing you know you're in a human lobster trap be a nightmare yeah find out what your spatial ecology is they'd find out it's not very my home range is like i've got two core areas of use uh occasional forays oh god what a lame joke (laughs) (laughs) oh god okay no but it beautifully segues onto why would we even care about spatial ecology why would we care? You tell me. Well, to protect something, you sort of need to know what it what it needs, right? What does it need? What is it? What what's worth protecting to keep these these turtles safe? What sort of aspects of the river do they need? What sort of uh, like characteristics? Do they like sandbars? Do they like vegetation? Stuff like that. And that can be quite hard to do with a lot of species because you've got to be able to see them, or detect them, or or know that they're using them. Mm. But things like turtles or snakes or, or other herps, it's often hard to detect them doing stuff because they're underwater, underground, in the bushes, hard to see, right? Yeah. So spatial ecology is a nice sort of shortcut when you can't just walk out there every day and see what the animal's doing. It gives you that sort of upper hand. If you've got a radio transmitter on it, at least you know where it is at any given time, you know, with your ability to find it and things forgotten yeah. just take take it as red you can find the animal so i don't know it's it, it's it is a it's good baseline information for determining an animal's needs spatial requirements and it is not infrequently i can't remember what the the percentage is i think it's output of 60 percent of like spatial ecology papers end up being used in some referenced in some sort of managerial capacity. Um, really, a, that's great. Or at least you know this is this is. Uh, let me let me pull up the paper because that's a, that's a, actually a nice stat to justify. It's a Fraser et al. paper, I believe. Yeah, track tracking the conservation promise of movement ecology. There's quite frequently connections to uh, conservation management. Uh, like things made in movement ecology papers so there is that direct connection in the paper and yeah we found that on average 60 percent of available movement ecology research was used in status assessment processes what for the iucn status assessment no 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 this is covering a whole bunch of mammals i think it's state level in the usa i believe case study focusing on transboundary species occurring across canada u.s border okay they had whooping crane White sturgeon, short-tailed albatross, sea otter, roseate tern, piping plover, uh, uh, right whales, a merlet, grizzly bears, orcas, warblers, Mate. turtles. It's a pretty charismatic animals we're talking about here. 
they are pretty charismatic animals, but the point is that they are these movement ecology studies do get integrated into conservation planning if useful. If yeah, done that's really good. Which which is a big deal, and it provides a nice justification for you know this Ross et al. paper that we're discussing right now. That's actually quite heartening. And I suppose the thing is with this, if you've done the paper, it doesn't have to be now, it doesn't have to be soon. It could be 10 years' time, and the information you gathered probably is still going to be reasonably relevant, provided the habitat's still more or less the same. Right, and if you're supplying data alongside, even if things like methods move along, people can sort of reanalyze it alongside a bigger data set and still pull out some pretty useful information when it comes to uh, conservation planning. Mm. So, yeah. So in terms of... uh... That's the obviously the usefulness of this paper. What they actually did was obviously radio tracking, and they captured turtles using the traps, like I just mentioned, and they actually attached the radio transmitters using zip ties. So they drilled little holes in the edges of the carapace, and they put zip ties round the radio transmitters, which I've never seen before, but obviously works pretty well because anyone who's come into contact with a zip tie knows they're more or less invincible. Yeah, um, pretty much indestructible to all things that aren't knives. Yeah, yeah. And uh, so they zip-tied these radio transmitters. They had 15 female and 3 male smooth soft shells upstream and 10 female and 12 male downstream. They struggled to find males in the upstream portion of the river for whatever reason. And once these radio transmitters were attached... They were tracking turtles by either motorised boat, which sounds quite fun. Motorised boat? Motorised boat, yeah. Motorised boat. Not sailing. Or canoe, which sounds great. Kayak, that's even more exciting. And occasionally wading. Wading, I don't think I fancy the wading, but... uh, What about paddle boarding? Yeah, that'd be awesome. But I think it would be a lot to radio track animals whilst on a paddle board. And also... You haven't really got anywhere to put your stuff. If you drop something, it's going in the drink. Yeah, that's, yeah. so I suppose it's pretty high stakes. Yeah, it's high stakes tracking, especially when everything you're holding is incredibly it's expensive. It's sensitive to water. Yeah, and expensive. <laughs> um, so they were doing the tracking from June 2013 to December 2014. So quite a long period. Yeah, kayak tracking of turtles. Uh, oh yeah, and we haven't mentioned how big these turtles are. They're quite, they're quite sizable, although... Some of the ones in this population weren't actually that big, so they considered females adult at 14 centimetres shell length and males 8 centimetres shell length, but females can get over 30 centimetres and males close to 20, so uh, yeah. Well, it's one of those things where they're like, what you actually care about is this uh, size and maturity, because once they've matured, they're just going to keep on growing slowly but surely, right? I don't think there's going to be a Okay, they might slow down, but they never really stop with turtles, no. right? I wouldn't have thought so, no. Yeah, I think they just get bigger and bigger and bigger and bigger. But until, m- m- until they consume slowly. the entire river. Yeah. Um, and so, yeah, they did all this tracking and they found out a bunch of stuff. This was a really long paper, um, but they talked about much, much, much things. I think one of the cool things they found initially was that these turtles are really fidgety. As in, every time they turn up, turtles are in a different place. They or don't almost, what was it, 97.44% of tracks when they turned up, turtle was somewhere else. So these guys are movers. They're busy, busy turtles. Yeah, I quite like that too. To be honest, I can't imagine a river, being underwater in a river is an easy place to just chill out and stay in the same place for very long. Well, 
not when it's when it's flowing and not frozen and sort of uh, non-winter time. Because that's yeah. the thing, they didn't track during the depths of winter, did they? No. No, they um, were probably stationary over the winter, being as these are animals that properly hibernate. Yeah. Well, not hibernate, but whatever. Brewmate. Brewmates, that's the ticket, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah, so I did that 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 struck me as interesting. I mean it is what were they tracking every day? They were tracking but every, every day every other every for five days every day. And then they'd wait a week of not doing it, and then they'd do five days again. Hmm. Um, which I think was them swapping between their two sites. Maybe I'm not sure. Um, but what one thing I thought was quite interesting is that the turtles definitely have a preferred active temperature, and that is 25 degrees. That is the t- that is the temperature where they are most active. There's a really nice curve, and it just shows that at 25 degrees water temperature. That is, the movement rates were highest. Uh, which also happened to correspond quite well with springtime. And so the first sort of days they were tracking in the spring were when the turtles would be moving most, which kind of makes sense because you think that they're just coming out of hibernation. They're probably really hungry. And that movement rate steadily decreased as the year went on. Yeah. And it wasn't... That was, that was a sort of nice, uh, the nice bit of the paper. They had a large enough sample size that they could look at some of the effects between male and female and it was looking like female turtles moved more like they were more affected by that 25 degrees peak than males that were less dependent or less impacted by the temperature yeah which was neat yeah and on average just as like a really rough mean so people can get a vague idea of what these turtles were up to so turtles on average were moving around well Females were moving about 160 metres a day on average, and males about 125 metres a day. So they're pretty active, like you say. Um, Not only are they moving often, but they're also moving, you know, relative distances. I think certainly compared to many terrestrial snakes, that's quite a lot of movement. Um, But obviously not a lot compared to others. Depends what you're tracking. But uh, yeah, so they're definitely, they described them as vagile, didn't they? Yeah, I think that's quite fair, because you've got to remember how big these turtles are and that that's a a mean movement rate uh over the day from one day's tracking to the next day tracking and there's no way a turtle just went a straight line from point a to point b although actually they didn't calculate that based on straight lines did they they did minimum distance it could have been while staying in the river channel yes so they followed the curve of the river yeah so i mean that seems like a still conservative estimate for the movement over a day because they're going to wiggle all over the place, go foraging, doing all turtle stuff. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, I I think that's a pretty accurate apt description for them. Is that they're active little turtles? Yeah, they most definitely are. And speaking of their kind of activity, the linear range, so how much of the river was actually occupied by the turtles varied from one kilometer so they would inhabit a one kilometer stretch and just mooch around in there looking for fish that's the minimum maximum was 36.2 kilometers of river length which Mm. yeah was there was one female that went that far which is just crazy she was very much a river user and the highest 
linear ranges were found upstream, which makes sense because the river would be narrower and therefore there's less area for them to cover. But they did say that in general, upstream individuals didn't have ranges that encompassed longer stretches of river. So there was just a few that did have ex- exceptionally long river ranges. Um, yeah, it was a little bit strange their longest distance moves because they were all after... Didn't they, didn't they say it was sort of... They got captured and then cap- they Right, go. captured, released, and yeah. then off they went. And it does sort of make you wonder whether it is a response to being captured and uh, tracked, doesn't it? I think in the paper they said they, they did consider that, didn't they? But they said, we think it's probably more likely that it's nesting behaviour, like the females have just decided to go to their nesting grounds. But it is strange that it happened straight after they were tra- trapped. Yeah, but then at the same time you say, okay, maybe the the females are more likely to be trapped when they're on their way to be to nest or something. So it's just sort of two things mm. being correct at the same time. It is a little bit weird. Yeah, especially when way. the numbers are so crazily high compared to compared to some others. Yeah, but then it's only upstream females. Yeah. So. Hmm, yeah, I don't know. I don't know. It's the sort of thing where you're like, okay, well, you need to try it somewhere else and see what happens too. Yeah. Or if yeah. you think it is because of the way the transmitter is being attached or the capture methods, you do different capture methods somewhere else and see if it prompts the same response. Yeah, because it's not just like they're being captured and let go. They're being captured, then having little holes drilled into them and then having radio transmitters attached with zip ties. So it's like, it, I mean, that would that would be pretty unpleasant. Yeah, yeah. But anyway... One thing I quite liked was the fact that they kind of realised that although turtles are inhabiting a stretch of river, they're not just inhabiting the entire stretch of river. Along the river, there'll be like areas of core use. So say there'll be two meanders next door to each other on a river. They might just like the two little hooks where the meanders actually turn and they'll just hang out in those two spots. Or they might like a straight stretch and then somewhere else just down river. So they're travelling, using the river to travel between areas of core use, which I thought was quite cool. Yeah, and that's useful conservation-wise because you can pick out, okay, what are in these core areas of of use? What are the particular resources they're bouncing between up and down the river? Mm. And I think that's... They had quite variable home ranges, didn't they? That was one of the things they they really got at. Yeah, quite variable areas they were using. So I suppose that that might be partly explained if there's these little pockets of resource or whatever, these core areas... If one's particularly good and the you owls know, don't need to move, they don't uh, use it up, then that might explain some of the smaller ranges. Whereas if they're smaller pockets of resources and then it needs to make, you know, it needs to zoom up the river to get to another spot, then that may, yeah. might explain some of the larger ranges. And they did suggest that some of them were actually nomadic or close to nomadic, where they just never stop expanding their home range. Yeah, there was there were what was it two or three of them that they were yeah. suggesting sort of never quite settled down. Mm. But I I don't know I'm always a little bit nervous of saying that sort of thing with spatial ecology studies because you're only tracking a subsample of the overall animal's lifetime. If then next year they return to the original home range, then it's just like a multi-year cycling mm. of you know resource patches or whatever. So it's always difficult to say that sort of stuff. And I, I mean, they they say themselves in the paper that home range size was dependent on number of radio locations. Yeah. So you know that your your sampling is impacting the results you're getting 
in terms of home range size. So, okay, one side that could be you track them longer, you get a bigger home range because they are nomadic. The other side is your sampling isn't large enough anyway. Yeah, I think what they were doing was they were comparing it, weren't they, between... They basically had like X number of locations, which meant that they felt relatively sure about the home range because it wasn't growing anymore with subsequent tracks. So they'd track a turtle in a new spot and it wouldn't affect any more the size of its home range. And then they had that, I think it was like 40 something, something around there. They were suggesting that... 56. 56. 56, right. And they were suggesting that at that number, they had a good idea of the home range because it wasn't growing anymore. And then there was a few which they had a higher number and they were like, oh, it's not it's not stopping um, at like 66. So perhaps that means it's nomadic. And like you say, I mean, that's by no means definite. All you can really say, I suppose, is that they're much more, at, they're, they're using a much wider area compared to their compatriots than, yeah. than is normal. I do love the idea of a nomadic turtle, though. One that's just like, every year I just go downstream, you know. Just do what I want. Go wherever. Yeah. Nest wherever. Eat wherever. Never stop. Like a <laughs> modern day turtle cowboy. Like a rolling turtle. But I agree it doesn't really make that much sense. Well it's it's not even it's it's not even that it doesn't make much sense. It's just incredibly hard to tease apart. And I sort of wonder whether it's super useful because you're already looking at a subsample of a population and a subsample of those individuals lives it's like you are you are extrapolating a lot from quite small data that that's the that's the downside of a lot of spatial ecology paper uh, studies is is that it's quite expensive to do it's certainly work intensive to do i mean to get these locations people had to be out in the field every day day on day on end so it's you know it's hard one data but it is hard to tease apart those sort of effects hmm yeah, they did. Uh, they did get some cool insights about how males and females behave differently. Mm. The um, and also the fact that so sexual differences in movement rate vary with environmental conditions and the time of year. So that if you were just comparing mean movement rate between the sexes for a whole year or a short period of time, you that might actually result in an incomplete understanding of how these turtles are behaving. So. As an example, female movement is usually higher, which kind of makes sense. Females are bigger, but it's not in all conditions. So if there was low water temperatures, uh, the movement of males and females is quite similar. And also when the water level is really high, the movement of males and females is also similar. Whereas if there's greater flow or higher temperatures, females move a lot more than the males which are quite sort of niche little findings, which unless you'd done quite a thorough job of taking those particular variables and also doing uh, the study over the course of an entire year, you might well miss. Yeah, I really like that uh, male-female impact on gauge, what was it, gauge height, water depth? Yeah, yeah. Because um, to me that very much suggests, okay, well you've got females using a slightly different niche to males perhaps, they're using slightly deeper water, they're going over maybe slightly different prey, who knows but I liked I liked how they teased that out, that was mm. yeah, really really yeah. neat. Yeah, it seems like it seems like there's 
situations where the water becomes like almost inhospitable for the little males because it's too extreme like high flow the water's rushing down you can imagine these little tiny males getting a bit you know caught up and not not coping so well being slightly less strong swimmers whereas the big disc females much more comfortable bowling around yeah yeah they're just like chugging on which is yeah it's quite cool isn't it and like you said it is kind of pointing towards a little bit of partitioning which we we love to talk about we do Um, yeah but you know i think that's great like the females they must eat bigger fish being as they're bigger um so yeah it seems to make a lot of sense i mean they might not but it seems like they probably can they've got a bigger you know it's with fish it's i mean they're eating them in pieces but nevertheless it's probably slightly still gape limited yeah well you still got to overpower a fish of however size even if you're capturing it although somewhere they said they did like bugs Oh. I have they like bugs written in my notes. So the diet of these turtles is primarily insects. Really? Everything That's, I read said it was fish, but I'm well I'm probably references twenty seven and twenty eight say otherwise. Oh, does it say it in the paper? Aye. Oh, I just missed that, okay. I think it also confused me slightly because like in the next paper they only fed them fish and in this paper they used fish as bait. So I was like, these guys love fish. Well I mean they do they, they clearly do like fish, but they, yeah. they eat a lot of bugs. I think fish is their <laughs> favourite though. Fish is their favourite, right? Yeah, it's like but, a rare treat. Yeah, but in obviously in certain circumstances they'll get them uh, as a treat. <laughs> yep. Uh yeah, so that's that's really it. Like some of these turtles were moving you know, up to 35 kilometers up or downstream. Um, yeah, females moving, generally moving more, but not always. Um, yeah, lots of good sort of information for conservation management here. Yeah, I mean, I think that the takeaway I, I get is very variable home ranges. You got some turtles doing some weird semi nomadic stuff potentially. Um, and it really nicely sets the uh, sets the stage to go back in and work out exactly the characteristics of the river channel where these supposed core areas are. Hmm. Yep. See what's going on. And whether they actually differ from other areas, or whether it's just a sort of artifact of of tracking data. I mean, yeah, be interesting to see if they are they are actually core areas. There are actually core areas of resource. Hey keep your rivers flowing so your turtles can go up and down all 36 kilometers or wherever they far they need to go mm, yeah no it's nice to know especially as these turtles are obviously surviving in quite a heavily modified river environments and they're still just chilling with it which is quite nice for now yeah i hope yeah. i hope it hope they continue so um should we move on to page two Yeah, paper two is by Plummer and O'Neill, again published in 2019. Aerobic push-ups, cutaneous ventilation in overwintering, smooth softshell turtles. Um, Yeah, published in Journal of Herpetology, relatively new, on the same species, right? Yes, exactly the same species. Nice. And like you were saying before, the softshell turtles have pretty special skin. They do. It's all geared towards gas exchange. Yeah. Reptiles are usually quite impermeable. Snakes. Mm. That's probably a bit of an over overgeneralization, but you know, you think of a snake or you think of a lizard, except for some of the sea snakes, but generally speaking, they can go long periods without water because they lose so little water through their scaly bodies. They're pretty much, you know, 
waterproof yeah. in and out. Um, but like Soft you say, they'll dry out real quick. Yeah, they will. They're literally that's one of the records they hold, isn't it? Quickest um, reptile to dry out. No, literally, like they actually experience more. Um, what was the term they used? They said um, evaporative water loss. Of yeah, known reptile. Yeah, the highest evaporative water loss, which is you know a bit embarrassing for them, I think. Um, <laughs> <laughs> but uh, they uh, they also have reduced bone in the shell, and that's to aid gas exchange between the skin and the insides. Have you um, seen? Have you seen what their sort of shells look like? What, as in? Have I seen a picture of one? Yeah, well, the the inside. Yeah. Oh, no, not the inside. They're all full of holes and stuff. Spray. Oh, really? It's like a... It's it's what you'd sort of picture if you were heading from having no shell to having a shell. And it's sort of slowly developing and sort of stretching out and becoming becoming whole. But it's all still porous. That's pretty cool. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, they uh, the other niche record they hold is for the highest cutaneous surface area among all turtles. That must be relative to body size, but nevertheless, that's pretty bad. So yeah, they've got and more useful. skin. They've got more skin and less bone. That's what you need to know about these guys. And yeah, that's great if you want to exchange water and gas, which is, can be quite useful to aquatic organisms because if you're chilling around in the water. It's a hassle to go up to the surface and exchange gas in the air when you're pretty much strictly aquatic. Because like we said, these guys absolutely hate going on land. It's their worst nightmare. Um, apparently they are actually quite good walking around on land. Like they, People mock them and say they're not very good. But um, <laughs> they actually but can really. do it. They can do it. They just don't like to. Um, yeah. So... Before we get into the kind of meat of this paper, um, I had to do some reading about lactate and how that works, um, <clears throat> which I thought I'd relay yeah. on the podcast as like a sort of bit of background. So lactate, which is, we all produce, is produced when you breathe anaerobically. So when, not breathe anaerobically, that's a stupid thing to say, but when, you, uh, when you're exercising. Yeah, yes. When you're respiring anaerobically, for example... If you're exercising very hard and there's insufficient oxygen to power your muscles, yeah, instead of using oxygen, you're using alternate method to gain energy. And this is what we call feeling the burn. So if you've ever exercised, you start running too hard or cycling, your your muscles start to hurt. And that is because lactate is being produced within the muscles from this anaerobic respiration that's occurring. And some turtles are quite good at this, but they won't be doing it when they're exercising hard so much as when they are chilling at the bottom of a river uh, during their overwintering period. So painted turtles can hibernate underneath vegetation at the bottom of ponds, and they can actually respire anaerobically without oxygen at the bottom of the pond. And when they do this, because lactate is being produced in their bodies it has to go somewhere because otherwise it will poison them and so they can actually store that excess lactate in their bones but because of the fact that soft-shelled turtles have reduced bone inside their shells as we discussed which is beneficial because it allows more gas exchange they actually don't have anywhere to put this lactate if they're respiring anaerobically they actually struggle to balance the lactate levels produced they're just the whole body is burning as they're sitting there under the water it would just be awful, right? All their yeah. muscles are aching. 
Yeah. So what they have to do is ensure they get a steady supply of oxygen whilst hibernating underwater. And this paper looks into how they might do this. How do they get away with it? How do they get away with it? Well, Mm. to find out, they had two experiments, right? So they had a big outside network of ponds with 25 juvenile turtles between two and four years old. And they basically had two shallow ponds and a deep pond. And they just observed the turtles in this pond. And in the deep one, over the winter, the turtles all made their way there and half buried themselves in the sand and mud at the bottom to kind of chill out over the winter period. And occasionally they'd go and check up on them, look at them, see what they were doing. So and I they think, also... Yeah, just, just jumping in. I think that's an important point to make. You said the turtles are allowed to do this themselves. It, it's like a set up the experimental conditions, but then it's hands off when it comes to behavior and how the turtles are choosing to deal with the colder temperatures. Oh, yeah, definitely. There's yeah. actually an outside pond as well. They're living in exactly. a natural environment. They're just, it's just contained. Yeah, and in a way that it's uh, viewable to the uh, to the researchers. Yeah, yeah. They had like I a like cheeky that. little webcam on a stick that they'd like put in. Didn't they? <laughs> what are the turtles doing? Oh, and uh, occasionally what they do, because obviously just waiting for turtles to do stuff is a bit boring. So they had an aquarium, and they would actually catch the turtles, put them in the aquarium, and then demand that they did something interesting, um, which thankfully they did. So they'd get the turtle, obviously. They didn't really do that, but they would put it in the aquarium, which was just plain cold aquarium at like seven or eight degrees Celsius. Um, I don't know what that is in Fahrenheit, like maybe a hundred. <laughs> <laughs> Somewhere between one and a hundred. Yeah. Oh no, maybe it's like, probably lower than that, isn't it? It's probably lower than. Yeah, I don't know. But um, oh, who basically. Magic numbers. Cold. It was cold. Not so cold as ice, but not far off. And... Uh, the turtles were in this aquarium. They'd leave them for a couple of hours to like relax, become accustomed to the fact they were now in an aquarium and no longer in the pond. And then after that, they'd start filming them and doing some other stuff, jiggery-pokery, but generally speaking, just watching them. And yeah, they managed to see some quite cool stuff. One of the things they were expecting, we've talked about cloacal gas exchange on the podcast before with another, it was the, um, the musk turtles, wasn't it? They were uh, breathing through their cloacas. Yes. Yes, I think it was, wasn't it? Yeah. Yeah. So they were kind of expecting to see that. So they were putting carmine crystals, which I think are tiny pieces of quartz, into the aquarium in and around their cloacas to see if they could see the crystals coming in and out as the turtles breathed through their cloacal opening. But they really didn't see that at all. Mm. The other thing they were keeping an eye out for was uh, bucopharyngeal respiration, where the turtles suck water into their throats and extract oxygen from it inside there they saw that a couple of times but it certainly wasn't a common occurrence uh but they they do know that these midland well they didn't specify the subspecies but these soft shell turtles can do that they did it a few times but it certainly wasn't their bread and butter method of getting oxygen from the water so what they actually found was that they were doing these hilarious little what they call press-ups well, push-ups, yeah. Push-ups. Push-ups, press-ups. Well, they call yeah. them push-ups. That's all like, you know, that's, that's, okay. that's what I'm going. Yeah, okay. Uh, but they were doing these push-ups, but I think they should be called reverse push-ups because you don't use your back legs in a push-up, really, other than just to hold yourself up, do you? Yeah, that's a good point. Backwards push-ups. Yeah. So they would sort of lay there, 
half buried in the silty mud, and they'd straighten out their back legs and lift the back of their shell up. And then after a few seconds or a minute, they'd lower it back down. And with the carmine crystals, those tiny little crystals they put in the water to see where the water was moving, what they saw is that as they lifted up, water was sucked underneath the turtle. And as they pushed back down, the water was blown back out from underneath them. And in this way, they were essentially ensuring that enough oxygenated water was spreading around their bodies that it could be absorbed through their skin. Yeah, basically generating water flow over their weird, weird, soft, porous skin. Exactly. It's genius, really. It really is like a blooming good solution to what they need, which is oxygen. Uh, And so, yeah, they basically just flush the water over there over their skin and in this way they managed to not ever go up to the surface to breathe yeah and they it isn't a whole winter without getting any actual air yeah and it does seem to be a direct response to the oxygen levels too because they found that with lower percentage of oxygen in the water they would increase the frequency of their little push-ups yep and the same Just was true in warmer water as well if the water got warmer their metabolism would get faster and they would have to do more push-ups, which they also notice. Mm. So yeah, when the water's not very oxygenated, tails doing loads of push-ups, um, and in this way they can manage to breathe. So what it does mean is that, unlike the painted turtles I mentioned earlier, which can breathe through, well, who can respire anaerobically at the bottom of lakes, these guys actually have to be kind of probably on the surface of the substrate underwater. They can't really be buried because they need that oxygenated water. And they hypothesize that it also probably means that they try to overwinter in areas where there is a little bit of flow to keep that oxygen coming over them. And that was actually one thing they said, which may have been a limitation of this study, is that obviously in their pond and in their aquarium, the water was pretty much still. Yeah. So they would have been less oxygen saturated. Although they did, in the aquarium, certainly they did have a bubbler trying to get oxygen saturation to but 95% it, or above. The idea is that it's lower flow than it's it's lower flow than you would find in a natural river. Yeah. Or something yeah. like that. So, I mean, if this might be a good uh, proxy if they're living in a, in a lake or still yeah. ponds or a swamp or something like that. Yeah, well, they might well still do it, just maybe they're doing it less frequently in a river. Well, that's, but I think yeah, in... that's exactly it. I think that's what they were saying towards the end when they're saying, okay, this hasn't been seen in the wild, but that very well may be because water flow is improved in the wild. And even, I mean, this seems like quite a tricky behaviour to observe in the in the lab, let alone in the wild. So, Yeah, I mean, I guess you could just set up a webcam next to a brumating turtle on the bottom of a river, but you've well, got to find one find... Yeah, exactly. and hope it doesn't get spooked. One. Yeah, yeah. And plus, I don't know, every time you see a turtle at the bottom of the river, your first instinct isn't to put a camera on it, it's just to grab it. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I guess. (laughs) So yeah, it's a pretty neat little little behaviour that they're doing. Um, And it kind of fleshes out something they might be doing in the winter. So in the spring and summer, they're scooting around all over the place, eating apparently insects, and uh, occasionally when they can, delicious fish. and then in the winter time, they settle down at the bottom of the river and they do themselves some little push-ups in order hmm. to breathe through their yeah permeable weird skin. I mean, it may be weird, but it's doing them doing them just fine. Yeah, I think uh, next time you're kind of cozy and warm by a fire in mid-December, you know it's maybe snowing. You've got a hot chocolate there, and your oxygen requirements are like comfortably met. Just <laughs> 
you live in the air and atmospheric levels are comfortable. There are soft shell turtles out there buried in the mud, half buried in the mud, in the depths of a freezing river doing backwards push-ups to facilitate oxygen transfer of their skin. Yeah, and so their body doesn't start screaming at them from lack of oxygen. Yeah, we're lucky, really. What a life. What a life. Yeah, but there you go. That is the smooth, soft-shell turtle, Apollone mutica. They move around and they breathe through their skin. Yep, 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 yep. If anyone's got personal experience of these turtles, let us know. I'd love to hear them. Well, critically, does their skin feel like a very dense sponge? Yeah. We have been sent a photo of the soft-shell before, do you remember? Well, haven't we been told how they feel? Yeah, we have actually been told how they feel. And I just can't remember because I'm... They feel good, I remember that much. Yeah. Damn. I feel like we should look it up if we're going to say that. Oh, that's going to be hard. It's going to be hard to look up, isn't it? Yeah. When did we talk about them I vaguely remember people saying they were velvety. But then this, this might just be me sort of making stuff up. Hang on. Ah, yes. So we did have an email about them. And it was from Scott Weiss back in March of last year. And he said uh, he'd seen a 50 centimetre soft shell turtle, which is an absolute beast. And uh, he Wait, described 50 centimetres. Oh, but this is the spiny soft shell. That's this is the big. spiny soft shell. I'm okay, trying to think so. about how big the one I've seen is or was. But then that's a di- yeah, that was like one, one in Florida. So goodness knows they probably get the size of houses down there. Yeah. So, yeah, it's a spiny soft shell, Apollone spinifera. And, uh, yeah, Scott said, and we have said this before, but we're going to revisit it because we're doing soft shells. To me, they have a slick, rubbery feel to their shells when wet, although many people describe them as having a leather-like feel. Mm. Nice Hmm. to touch. Nice to touch. Soggy leather. Soggy leather. Interesting. Yeah, like a, yeah... No. Regardless, that's how they kind of feel, which is cool. So yeah, soft-shell turtles. Soft-shell turtles are great, and they live in the river. <laughs> they are, and they do. Um, <laughs> but yeah, thanks very much to Brandon Brasser for that uh, Patreon episode. It's mm. great to read about soft-shell turtles. And uh, yeah, everyone else can be our Patreon. Just go to patreon.com slash highlights, and if you become a $3 a month subscriber you can pick an episode and uh we'll dictate cover it the subject dictate the subject it's actually great we've had actually exclusively good suggestions what are you doing over there ben what am i um uh, making sure i have to write the right email for the crocodile stuff in a minute <laughs> <I realized laughs> he's I was freaking looking out the he's, wrong getting one. Worried. <laughs> he's getting worried <laughs> because it's a controversial subject there's people calling other people out for saying they found a crocodile they didn't find or they did find oh uh, yeah so if you misrepresent sure. this people are gonna hate you yeah yeah so i was okay. just checking on that okay so bang the turtles are done by week Right, species of the bye week. Yeah, get so out this... of here, turtles. You're great, but this time for species yeah. of the bye week now. I looked for a species of turtle. I say I, we, as a collective, looked for a species of turtle to cover, but unfortunately, it was all just turtle parasites. That's all you get, or turtles from the Cretaceous period, which, as we learnt many moons ago, <laughs> we don't mess around with. Absolute disaster. That was crazy hectic. Yeah, God. I think if you are an archaeologist. I take my hat off to you because it's 
it's it's tough going. Pa- paleontologist. <laughs> Those two terms are interchangeable. Are they? Um, no. Archaeology is like the actual digging. Yeah, isn't that's it? like well, archaeology is like it's everything. Team. Yeah, but I sh- I'm sure you'd be an archaeologist if you're digging up dinosaur bones. No, you're just a paleontologist. So paleontology is like the study of extinct animals, right? Yeah. Archaeology is just like. I thought archaeology was more human centric. But but okay. I don't know. That might not be. That, that might not you're be right. That. You know. Yeah. Is the study of human activity through the recovery and analysis of material culture. So you could study paleontology via archaeology if you were studying ancient paleontologists. Paleontology is the branch of science concerned with fossil animals and plants. So no overlap with archaeology, really. Well, humans are animals. Yeah. No, I'm just trying to claw back some semblance of like being right when I'm clearly wrong. So yeah, no, no, I just don't know what the difference was, and I'm a little bit ashamed by that. But now I do. So. <laughs> That's why we're here. We're here to learn. Darren. We're here to learn. We're learning. Okay, so species of the bye week. Moving on. This one is by Lou Bonkowski, Guyan, uh, Lay, uh, Kalame, and Ziegler, published in 2020. That's right, 2020, the year we literally just entered the other day. This is a futuristic world. Fresh off the press. This was actually appeared on the internet on the 1st of January. So I think it's probably safe to assume this snake is the first snake of a new decade, of a new era. Yeah. And it is a new species of Lycodon from central Laos. Review Suisse de Zoology is where it was published. I haven't heard of that journal either, but this paper seems to be extremely credible. And so, yeah, we're going to do it. Well, if it's not, that's somebody else's problem. I'm also kind of like inclined to trust things that are Swiss for some reason. Like I've got a really positive bias for Switzerland. Like I trust them. Do you ever find that? Yeah, I mean, they do have some pretty renowned universities and stuff. So yeah. I, I sort of presume that this journal is connected to a natural history museum in Switzerland or something along those that's lines. Where I, that's where right? I, that's kind of how I feel. Yeah. Yeah. Just Let's have a inherently, look the... inherently trustworthy. Yeah, who knows? I'm sure it's fine. So, Lycodon, they get about. They do. The genus has a broad distribution from eastern Iran. Europe, keep going, Iran, to southern China and Japan, southward to the Philippines, as well as the Indo-Australian archipelago. They're everywhere. Archipelago. The archipelago of Indo-Australia. And this will be species number 51 in the genus of Lycodon. That'll do then, won't it? Lycodon, commonly called wolf snakes. Because they have faces like wolves. Yep. I guess. I, I don't know why they're called wolf snakes. Is it something to do with their teeth? I don't know. I've never... I've never I've never questioned it. Like Don. 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 Den. Dentition. Don. Sounds like it could be a tooth thing. Yeah. Let's Google it. Herpetological highlights. Googling the things you never thought you wanted Googling. 
So, Lycodon is derived from the Greek words meaning wolf, odon. Yep. Oh, sorry, meaning wolf. Wolf is lycos, and odon means tooth, which oh. refers to the fang-like anterior maxillary and mandibular teeth. Bite uh, teeth like a dog. We did know. Yeah, but it's nice to have it confirmed, ain't it? Mm, yeah, 100%. So, basically, recently, there was a field survey in the karst forest of Fuhin Poon, natural protected area, apologies for my pronunciation, in Kamuane province, central Laos. And this led to the discovery of a snake, which could be identified as a member of the genus Lycodon immediately, because they've, de- they've definitely got a look about them, haven't they, the Lycodon? Oh, why? Yeah. Well, that's what I'm saying with the face. They've got these sort of... Uh, like they do have a sort of distinct head which some of them it's, it's even more pronounced but with like a snout and then a yeah. sort of fatter back of the head they're not yeah. a perfect triangle or anything like that they are that's a good description little subsections almost for the eyes yeah I'd never right thought consciously middle. about that but you're right they have like a bulbous back of the head and a narrower front of the head well I think if, if you look at the head of a lycodon and then you say look at the head of a crate Head shape's quite a nice way to begin differentiating some uh, mimicking species of, of Lycodon from yeah, yeah. more I dangerous mean, crate compadres. They're loose mimics, aren't they? They're they're pretty... I mean, they're not close. I mean, certainly the Thai species that I saw, you'd see one, you'd be like, you're no crate, silly sausage. Well, yeah, yeah I don't know. I don't know, you've got to remember those crates are pretty variable up and down their range as well. So, That's true. Okay, some of exactly where have. we were, it might not have been a big deal, but you yeah. roll out somewhere else and suddenly things start getting a little bit more complicated. I think where it gets more confusing is where crates are variable. So like some of the Indian crates are like plain, they're just plain grey. Yeah, or like, in Indonesia as well. Yeah. yeah, yeah, that's true. And that's even um, the same species of crake. A uh, crake. Crate. <laughs> What's the crake? <laughs> <laughs> It's a very uh, large venomous bird. So they only found one snake during but, this study, but someone also took a picture of another one about 12 kilometers away. So there are at least two. And in this paper, they also did some molecular analysis along with the morphological details. And so this is very convincingly, to me, a non-taxonomist, a new species. Right. They named it Lycodon banksii. Or Banksy, after Banksy, the famous yeah. British graffiti artist. Classic. Which I think is quite nice. I think it's time that Banksy, who is, you know, politically quite controversial at times, but obviously exceptionally talented, finally gets the recognition he deserves in, in the form snake of form. a snake being named after him. Yeah. So, yeah, that's good. Um, of course, that's a joke. The name of the species is actually <laughs> dedicated to the friend and colleague of the authors, Chris Banks, who's an international coordinator of the Philippine Crocodile National Recovery Team in Zoos Victoria, Australia, for his outstanding contributions towards amphibian and reptile conservation, in particular of the Philippine crocodile. Not sure how that's relevant to a species discovered in Laos, but, you know, there you go. Uh, I'm sure he's done loads of good stuff. Um, they proposed the following common name, Banks's wolf snake, or in German, which is way better, Banks Wolfsonata. Yeah, you're right, it is better. <laughs> um, you know, I think the common name Fuhin Poon wolf snake would have sufficed. 
But what do I know? What do you know? Anyway, there's snakes around. <laughs> Have I been too much of a dick there? Maybe. <laughs> I think... Yeah. That's, that's a your problem now, mate. <laughs> I'm only joking. I don't know. We just always like to bash things that are named after people because, I don't know, I, it, yeah, it still does kind of just great a little bit, like... Yeah, I mean, it's a really nice thing to do, and obviously, like, people have made massive contributions, and it is important to recognise them, but, like, yeah, I just think forevermore, people are just going to have to have nothing to remember the snake by, and it's just, like, it's a chore. Learning the names of snakes that have no relevance to their name makes it more difficult, and it mm. does annoy me. When you're trying to, especially if you're studying wolf snakes, like, you know, there's 50 species. If this snake was named after a couple of its visual characteristics, when you see one, having that immediate recognition... Yeah. I mean, I, yeah, I, I, I entirely agree. It's, it's mm. not to diminish the people that these, these animals are named after at all. It's, it's more just we don't like it in principle. Mm. Yeah. So, if you're how, big into your Lycodon species, which how, how big's this snake? Damn it! I need people need to see this in their minds. Oh, we haven't even talked about how it looks. Okay, so it's 415 millimeters snout to vent. And then the a tail length of, 50. yeah, over 50, because it, no, it was missing the tail tip. Mm. So, you know, 30 centimetre ruler, half again, bang. Not huge. But pretty but, gorgeous. Yeah. Oh, very much so. Yeah, so it's uh, kind of like a, what, it's like a sort of bluey black, grey. Yeah. Overall body colour. Quite nice. And then... Almost purpley, bluey, black-grey. Yeah. It's quite interesting. And then sort of deep blue-black eyes. And then there's this kind of like... How do you describe that? It's kind of almost like a reticulated pattern. Of sort of... Well, actually, no, it's not. It's more like it's more like there's lighter patches and then there's dark saddles. So the saddle's the same sort of colour as the... Mm, yeah, you could go that way around, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah can you yeah. see what I'm saying? So there's like yeah. bluey grey saddles on a kind of burnt, slightly muddy yellow background. Yes. Not dissimilar to like a corn snake pattern, but a little bit more faded. A little bit more faded and critically this sort of purpley darker colour and, and quite a luminous yellow, even if it's sort of fading into the brown. Yeah. Yeah, but um, yeah, and quite eyes quite far forward on the head, facing forward, um, nearly as far as a snake can have eyes that are facing forward. But definitely, you know, some good predatory vision, I'm sure. Elliptical pupils, so that and the fact that it was found both species, well, sorry, both individuals were found at night suggests it's probably a nocturnal snake. Um, I think the other lycodons are nocturnal too, for the most part, as far as I know. Yeah. So yeah, I mean it's probably eating lizards and frogs and stuff like that, bowling around the jungle. And this was found in um, secondary forest, wasn't it? Yeah, that's what I'm just trying to trying to pick. It's a sort of yeah, just secondary forest. That's that's what it says. I was wondering if we were going to get a type of forest or something, but no. Um, yeah, secondary forest, cast landscape, which is you know, renowned hotbed for new species coming out of the stonework. Probably not the last one we'll see from this sort of area. I'm sure there's some more geckos hiding around in those casts that are almost 
certainly being consumed by this little snake. Yeah, well, this team discovered two species of Cyrtodactylus recently too, didn't they? Um, Did they? Yeah, I'm mm. not. Su- I'm. I am not surprised. Yeah, yeah. So, uh, yeah, there's quite a few. Yeah, a lot of work to be done, I reckon. Mm. It's, it's good to see people out there. These limestone cast environments seem to be a little bit more difficult too. I think just because they're like a pain to navigate and walk around mm. on. Similar to the, the Madagascan cast, it's just like that little bit less easy, so it tends to take that little bit longer. Yeah, well, and you've got these sort of semi-arboreal, semi-fossorial animals living in lime, you know, small limestone, small limestone caves, and and you know the verticality of the landscape and things. It's all complicating uh, species descriptions and stuff. Yeah, mm, yeah, yeah. And um, yeah, if you're big into your lycodons, the new species is kind of closely related to a clade containing lycodon flavosinatus. Lycodon futsingensis, Lycodon meridionalis. There you go. But it's diverged nearly 10%. So it's very different genetically, according to the site B gene. Mm. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. That's enough on the genetics now. Thank you. Oh, wow. Cool drawing they've got in here of the head scalation. I love that. Just a pencil drawing. Mm. Ziegler Tidy and clear Yeah One of the authors Drew that I like to see that It's cool Uh, Yeah Sweet So that's it Um, Yeah they did just They did just Look at the one site B gene Which I guess Some people will suggest Isn't Very thorough But that's no. I'm not. I'm not going into that discussion. We're we're moving on. Let's talk about stuff we don't really get. Um, mate, I'm going to be becoming a geneticist soon. So soon, you're going to have to hear all about this kind of stuff. Are you? Yeah. I don't. Yeah, mate. It. We're sequencing the entire genome of the Escalapian snake. What? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Whoa. <laughs> all their genes. Why? To see how. Uh, the genetic structure differs from population to population, from like native range. Nice population genetic stuff. Refugial, yep. refugial populations, and then as they re-radiated out back after ice was covering everything, and then comparing how genetically varied our populations in the UK are to native ones. And you're doing the whole genome. Yep. Well, I'm not. Someone else is. Uh, we're just sending off a blood sample and getting back a ton of data which is a genome wow mm, yeah that is exciting. gonna be a wild ride i know yeah i'm like <laughs> mate that's I'm, pretty exciting <laughs> yeah it's pretty cool right like i'm yeah i'm i'm buzzing about it um so yeah soon we'll uh well, it won't be soon but in a couple of years maybe we'll be able to do a paper on, uh, a talk about it oh i hope so dude i hope so look forward yeah. to it yeah it's really got me pretty jazzed about genetics to be honest where before i was always like <laughs> where the <laughs> Um, well, it's so much better when you're actually uh, like doing something that's interesting in context. Yeah. Because yeah. the methods themselves are dry and not particularly interesting, but the implications mm. are cool. Yeah, when you can actually glean, especially because I'm gleaning, I'll be hopefully gleaning things about a snake, which I'm like super fond of as well. Yeah, um, exactly. And even sort of populations internal to Italy, seeing whether they're different on different sides of mountains and stuff like that should be pretty cool. Yeah, 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 yeah. Oh, who knows what you're going to find, mate. It's, it's, mm. Yeah. But uh, I digress, and that really, I think, is all we need to say. 
about Like It On Banksy. I think so. Yeah. Yeah. I think that wraps us up. Okay. Well, we have some any other business, I believe. Uh, we do now, because of the Christmas break and the fallibility of my memory. Um, I can't remember what episode it was, but we were talking about this rediscovered um Cayman, right? Yeah, Cayman Crocodilus apopurensis. Apple. Ap- well, I suppose it's we say apo, don't we? Apopurensis <laughs> doesn't matter. Yeah. Anyway, it's this little cute caiman from the middle of Colombia that was essentially inaccessible until recently because of armed guerrillas. Guerrilla fighters, not actual Too tempting to make that joke. But when you said armed guerrillas, the first thing that popped into my head was like a silverback with an AK. Yeah. Well, I hope that that popped into everybody's minds. (laughs) Yeah, so we got emails uh, from Brandon and... Eric, Eric Butler, and basically, I, I think we explained the whole thing of it was it was discovered by um, a researcher who I only have the first name in front of me, Sergio, um, and there was a, a paper out in Hope Re- Review about its rediscovery and stuff, and then there was all this hubbub and hoo ha because a Animal Planet guy um, also claimed to have found it, and it was this whole who's getting credit for rediscovering this species and it's obviously going to be Sergio's, you know, him and his team because to have a publication in Hope Review you've got to have had years building up to this point. Um, so I'm going to sidestep all the sort of drama between arguing over that and basically I think last time we were saying was it was this the one funded by Crocfest that we brought up on the podcast ages and ages ago? And it was. Yeah. Yeah, we should have so done a totally better follow-up on it. So this is like long overdue and well-deserved. Yeah, basically that is all the same stuff. So if anybody who supported Crocfest and stuff, that's where this money went. Hey, that's pretty awesome. Yeah, that is really awesome. They actually did find it. They did do the work. Everything sort of came to fruition. That's incredible. Um, Other than that, I mean, I Eric wrote some really good stuff about uh, the sort of duality of funding conservation via potentially sensationalist uh, wildlife documentaries, which I really agree with, but yeah. I don't think I'll go into because that's a yeah. whole discussion in of itself. Yeah, but, but weren't we in like was it last episode or the episode before we were talking about me and you doing a TV show where we go and try and discover long lost species and frustratingly Animal Planet has beaten us to it and it apparently oh yeah we were, yeah we were we were joking about that weren't we exactly as if it was you, our you idea got your, your run of twenty and you just go out and do it mm. yeah but to be fair I wouldn't I wouldn't go after Phylocene's great orcs I'd be tempted to go for for North American wood apes but really I know I wouldn't. You go for you'd you'd be looking for species that could actually genuinely be found. Yeah, but obviously, yeah. I mean, that's that is the nature of Animal Planet, though, isn't it? Like, let's go look for the thylacine. I mean, if the thylacine's still there, it's going to be one thylacine. It's going to be super poorly. <laughs> it's going to be really sad. Hmm. Uh, but tragic. Hey. Yeah. But yeah, so basically, the long and short of it is, Crocfest hosted this event where they got. Loads of crocodile and alligator enthusiasts 
um, did a big fundraiser, had a big barbecue and a party. It looked awesome. And the resultant expenditure from that uh, event actually managed to reconfirm a species being alive in the wild of of caiman, which is brilliant. Yeah. Or subspecies of caiman. Yes, yeah, subspecies, subspecies. But uh, no, I sort of, yeah, yeah, it's all it's all come together. It's all come from full circle. There's yeah. actually payoff. Yeah. Which is yeah. great. Yeah. So thanks for everyone who got in touch with us about that. So one other thing I'd like to say is that we have a new Patreon. Big up yourself, Matthew Burnett. Thank um, you. I hope they pronounced that right. Maybe it's Bonnet, but it's got two, two ends with Bonnet. Um, but yeah, thanks. It's great. Um, much appreciated. And uh, we'll be expecting an episode topic from you if you should like. No pressure. Um, <laughs> yeah, that's it. That's it. That's the episode. Yeah. I think that's I I I think it's all just that soft shell turtles, cool new snake. Mhm. Uh, yep. Yeah. So if you want to get in touch with us, you can through Facebook or Twitter. Just search for us. Um, if you're even basically computer literate, you won't struggle with that. Um, Herphighlights at gmail is our email address. And uh, yeah, thanks very much for listening. Thanks for listening. I was saying it at a different time to you. I was hearing you say it. It sounded completely different. Well, no, that's what we wanted. You want it, you say it, I say it, you say it, I say it. Ah. And then it fits together like um, some crocodile teeth. I thought we were trying to say it at the same time. That's no, stupid. that's impossible. Because okay. <laughs> of the, the delay in the Skype. Okay, frogs. 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 <laughs>